My name is Susan Brink, and I'd like to welcome you to the Jazz Journalist Association podcast, The Buzz. My guest today is author Rick Lopez. <laughs> Rick, welcome to The Buzz. Hi. There's been a lot of descriptives for what you do. How would you categorize it? Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly controlled chaos. That's about it. I always tell people I'm so far inside here, I really have no actual concept of what I'm doing. So I'm always surprised by people's reactions to it. <laughs> and it's like, what? I did what? You just self-published, right? Yes. Yeah, the Sam Rivers Sessionography, and you call it a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, 768 pages, and I already probably have about 35 pages of updates for it that I'll be putting out as PDFs if I can stay alive that long. Sam Rivers didn't, you didn't come to it. It came to you, from what I understand. Well, the origin is that I was listening to Eric Dolphy stuff at the time. This is back in the mid-90s. And so I was checking out Alan Saul at University of Pitt had Eric Dolphy discography, which I was consulting like every 15 minutes. At some point, listening to Dolphy and then getting wrapped up in that mid-60s Blue Note stuff where everybody was losing their minds the Cecil Taylor recordings and all that, I started noticing Sam Rivers as a sideman on some of them and then went and checked out his recordings because I loved the sound. And as is my want, I got, <laughs> I started drowning in there. So then I asked Alan, like, where's the Sam Rivers sessionography? And he said, there isn't one. And I said, why not? And he said, because no one has done one yet. And I was like, well, who does sessionographies? And he says, anyone can, you can. And that was the end of that. <laughs> and like, you know, the next day I'm writing emails to Sam Rivers Management and Impulse Records and these people, you know, Mosaic, Michael Kaskuna and all kinds of other people. I got flooded. I got buried in information, basically. So a couple months later, I put up that web page that was in March of 97. The fact that I got in touch with Sam's management meant that I got in touch with Sam, <laughs> who was immediately thrilled, you know, because he always felt underappreciated, which he is part of my mission here to cure that. So they were on tour just by chance up in the Northeast in September of 97, like six months later. And Matt Gorney, who was the manager at the time, was sitting around in the hotel room with Sam and Beatrice and the band members and said, hey, we're in Boston. The day after tomorrow, we're going to Cleveland. Erie, Pennsylvania is right in between. That's where that Rick Lopez guy is. Let's go there. <laughs> we're playing in Erie, Pennsylvania. This story is in the book. Sam just loved the work. He, I guess he used to look at it all the time. And then he started calling me on the phone. So then I started coming home to these great Sam Rivers phone messages. <laughs> Actually, there's a file of them up on SoundCloud. Sam Rivers phoned my home. And then after um, Beatrice passed 10 years later, and Monique moved up there. She started digitizing the archive, all the recordings, the reel-to-reels and stuff, and they started feeding all this stuff to me. Now, Beatrice and, was Sam Rivers' wife, and yeah. Monique is their Monique daughter. Was, Sam eventually ended up telling Monique when she was trying to figure out who everyone was and what the connections were. She said, who's this Rick Lopez guy? And Sam said, give him everything, <laughs> which is like, what? <laughs> you know, just because I was doing this online document. To me, it was just this obsessive, compulsive, I can't help myself, literally. 
So the fact that he noticed it in the first place was unbelievable. And then the fact that he started calling me up, I'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> what's happening here? And it just kept developing. 25 years of scholarship. It was all basically laid open for me, the archive. Who could ever imagine getting that kind of access? I never did. You did a sessionography for William Parker. Like I do with things, I got way carried away. And at one point, probably sometime by 98, I had 13 of them up at once. Oh, my goodness. I started the Henry Threadgill one, which actually somebody in Europe ended up adopting a couple of years later. And Matthew Shipp and William Parker and David S. Ware and Glenn Spearman and Marco Nady and Marilyn Crispo and Joe Moore. <laughs> some of those live online and some have been published, correct? The only other one that was published was the William Parker book. The reason that I realized I could do the Rivers one was... William had got a hold of me on January 1st of 2014 and said, I'd like to turn your research into a book. Would you like to do that for me? And I said, yeah, you know, who says no to William Parker about anything? So he said, I'll get a hold of you later about details and hung up. And I was like, OK, maybe what? Give me two, three, four years to hash out all the details, solve the mysteries, detail all the recordings, which I had never gotten to do them all. And he called me back at the end of the week and said, I'd like it done for Vision Fest in June. <laughs> I didn't have any publishing experience since I ran a small press in the mid to late 80s. So now it's 2014 and I'm clueless, basically. And I'm supposed to turn an HTML document, an online web page, into a print-ready document in four and a half months. Oh my and, you know, it was huge. And William was giving me a lot of new info. Ed Hazel ended up helping me a lot. I didn't do anything else for four and a half months. I mean, I was up at 5.30 in the morning and went until 11.30 at night every single day. I'd stop to work when I had to. I was driving a school bus. <laughs> but luckily, those were short stints, morning, afternoon, about five and a half hour lunch, sessionography. <laughs> I got that done by the skin of my teeth. I took like a year break because it almost killed me. Yeah. It ended up being, after I realized I could do the Rivers book, and I realized what I could do with the Rivers book, I thought I need to do that for Sam, because Sam was always underappreciated, the talent most deserving of wider recognition, the classic. At that point, I thought, well, okay, I'm giving myself a deadline, which I extended a little bit after a while. What was your original deadline? I actually decided to do the book in January of 2018. I wrote to Ed Hazel and said, God damn it, I'm doing this. I think my deadline at the time was three years. So it was like early 2021. It didn't get done until late 2022. Why did you decide to self-publish? If I wasn't self-publishing, then someone else would decide how it looked. No. And someone else would say, this goes in and this doesn't. No. And someone else would say, we don't like the tone of this. No. And someone else would say, this is a scholarly document. There's not supposed to be humorous stuff in here. No. To me, it wasn't like, I want to publish a book. To me, it was like, Sam Rivers gave me all this art, and I'm going to give him some now. I'm going to put something out that's representative of him, but that is also going to reek of me because it's mine. So I can't imagine letting anybody else have any kind of say over anything about it. So I had to. That's part of my disease, <laughs> which is why I'm packing every single book and labeling every single book and taking out car-sized loans to print it and everything else. It's a beautiful book. It worked, didn't it? It's it the one thing that I've ever done that I think, okay, maybe I am good at this. <laughs> 
So that is my vision of Sam Rivers and how his life rolled out. I mean, is he crazy or <laughs> you have like multiple gigs in days. You have a gig in New York City on a Saturday, a recording in France on Sunday and two more gigs in New York City on Sunday. This was how he did it all the time. There's accounts when he's 80 years old of him going from a gig in northern Florida and they're driving back at one in the morning. And he says, let's go to the studio. And they record tracks with the orchestra until 6 a.m. Orchestra members going over to his house to fix his computer and saying, I got there at nine in the morning and he was playing a soprano. That's all he did. He didn't have to do anything else. Beatrice did everything else. Right. It was a real division. It was a real marriage. Yeah, she was the force of nature. She was the fuel that made that whole thing run. Going through, like I said, it's beautifully laid out, but there's so much. You've got these beautiful posters and <laughs> fragments of conversation and interviews yeah. and the sessionographies. Chronological collage. I tried to um, read it that way, but it was overwhelming. I found myself just opening up at different times and reading. A review just came out. Mike Chamberlain just reviewed it and all about jazz on Sunday said that he doubted that anyone would read it through. And I was like, no, <laughs> the people that are going to get the biggest payoff are the ones that start at the beginning and read it through like a normal book instead of using it like a discography or a sessionography where they're looking for data bits because there's narrative flow. There are reveals. There are things that make your head explode a little bit because you've heard hints about it before and then it pops up again later, which was part of the process for me too, is building a, a serious narrative of how the book rolled out as well as the narrative of Sam's life. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it cover to cover. Let me know how crazy it makes you, buddy. <laughs> Actually, Chamberlain said in his review that reading it was a joyous, almost psychedelic experience. I was like, he gets me. He does. <laughs> that was such a nice surprise. And he name-checked my wife in it, too, which is a big deal to me. Yeah, Sandra. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and she's an archivist? Yeah. Well, you're getting great reviews. I know, I know. The reactions are killing me, honestly. How did you come up with this process? Because it's pretty unique to you. <laughs> the reason the book is priced so cheap is so my friends can afford it. Because I have a lot of people locally, regionally, that know what I do. And they're a fan of that. And I thought, well, this has to be priced really nice so they can afford it. Even if they don't know who the hell Sam Rivers is <laughs> or care who Sam Rivers is, they're going to want to buy it because I did it. And there's other examples of that on my website. There's like baseball and the 10,000 things I did in the early 90s. Sandra and I took care of my grandmother in the early 2000s to support and pay the medical bills. I did a newsletter called Lucille, the a reverential journal of the care of the beloved hag. <laughs> and it's, it's the same stuff. It's, you know, narrative things, it's pictures, it's prose, it's poetry, it's rants, it's bits of everything pieced together. I don't know. It's just it's just the way I the way my brain works. I can't help it. It's like I wish I had a leisure moment, but I don't because this is what I do. So right now you have up David Ware, Glenn Spearman, Mary Halverson. These are all on the web. How do you choose your subjects? Oh, I love the way this guy sounds. Oh, listen to her play the piano. Oh, my God, she's she's killing me. <laughs> you know, like that. After the Rivers book got done, I took 
a couple months to like stop weeping and stuff about all the trauma that the printers caused me. For a couple minutes, I thought, I'm never going to do this again. And of course, that went away. And I thought the thing I could do with the rest of my life is if I could make all my online documents look the way the Rivers book does, fill them out with narrative and all the rest of it, upgrade all the images and stuff, that would make me happy. So I did first runs through Ware and Spearman this summer. Mary Halverson's one has been the one that's been most active lately. So hers is upgraded already, except I'd like to do some of the images better. But then I decided to do Maryland's again. So I've been doing that and just found out that someone is doing a book on her and asked if they could use my sessionography within the book about Maryland. I was like, sure. <laughs> but I thought, okay, then I'm going to buff this up. So I'm going through and detailing all the recordings again, making sure they're consistent and upgraded all the images and did a lot of newspaper searches and stuff like that. I'm saving William Parker's for last, which I haven't touched in like four years because I thought, well, I'll try and get the smaller ones done first so I feel like I'm actually accomplishing something because <laughs> William's is going is to be nuts, you know, to get that up to snuff. So hopefully I'll live another 20 years and get those all all buffed up nice and shiny. So the Sam Rivers can be purchased on it's the Go, it's a Go GoFundMe page, which I'm just kind of rolling with because it's the easiest thing for me. I'm not an accountant. I'm not good at that kind of thing. I don't want to have it coming from 13 different places. Like I tried setting up a band camp thing. It was too obscure to me, the shipping nonsense. So I just decided I'm just going to stay here, do it myself buy it through the GoFundMe. It's nice because it's $55 or more, <laughs> which helps me to live, you know, because I drive a school bus 12 hours a week and my social security check is for shit. <laughs> a lot of people have really been incredibly generous. You know, I, I had two people give me $1,000 for a copy of this book. I believe it, the, the workmanship. That's like $55 for the book plus a what? $965 tip. That's like insane. It's like, what are you thinking, people? I ended up spending most of the money that had come in so far, went to the two research trips, week-long research trips to Orlando that Ed Hazel and I did. And then I also went to New York City and hit the libraries for a week. And I went to D.C. and went into the Smithsonian because they have the Dizzy Gillespie collection, which is why 87 to 89 is so dense. <laughs> I found two more dates, I think, of Rivers with Gillespie. But, man, I, I think I've got those two years pretty much covered. The scholarship is impeccable and the heart and Thank the humor you. that we've through it. It's a joyous read about a very important musician, his studio, Ribby Loft. Sam deserved it, you know. And I have to tell you, there was this like trifecta thing in my mind when I started it out. You know, Ed Hazel's like my partner in crime. Lucky for me, he's such a help. In the beginning, right after I decided and told him that I was doing the book, I was thinking, oh my God, he curates for no business. And I broached the subject with Ed and said, I need to get someone to do some archival releases. And he said, well, Danis, who runs no business, happens to love Sam Rivers. So they jumped on that. So there was the book, there's the recordings, and there's archives. So the book is out. Six CDs have come out already of archival releases from no business. And there's a 5LP set coming. And 
they hope to do more in the future, but we don't know yet. And the archive has been placed, and I can't tell you where yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there will be an official announcement soon. Here's the, the little Sam River tsunami. The Studio Ribby, the lineage that has come out of that is just phenomenal. And his legacy lives on. Do you know about the Studio Ribby Festival in New York, first week of January? I've heard a little bit. Can you tell me about it? Art for Arts decided to do it. They rented out the original, 24 Bond Street, and they're doing five nights, six nights, January 4th through 8th. They didn't get as many of the stalwarts from that scene as I would have liked. Like, I wish Joe Daly was there, and I wish Altshul was playing there. But they did get, like, Warren Smith will be playing, William Parker will be playing. I somehow got stuck on a panel opening night on the 4th trying to sell some books to raise money for that right now with William and Ahmed Abdullah and uh, Brent Hayes Edwards. I'm just going to sit way off to the side and let those guys <laughs> talk. So, and I'll be there selling books. I'm going to have a table with books and listen to music for four nights. I have to cut out before Sunday, but that's okay. Do you know if any of it will be live streamed? Mm, no, I don't. They didn't mention that to me yet. Their schedule has been put up online and everything, so there's details there. It's going to be a good thing. I don't know if I'll get down for it, but I've got it penciled in. (laughs) I'm way up north. I think that about wraps it up, unless there's anything else you can think of. That's plenty. It's hard for journalists to know how to do this. How, How do you take what's flying in your head and get it out to the world? And you've taken it a beautiful path. You've managed to retain control. It seems to have worked. Rick Lopez, thank you very much for being on the bus. Thank you for asking me. I'm so honored. I I can't believe the way this is all like kind of unfolding here, but I'll take it. And my name is Susan Brink. I'm with the Jazz Journalist (laughs) Association. You're listening to The Buzz, the JJA podcast. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo!